Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 35 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today I get to talk with Anna's mom. Recently, I have recorded a number of episodes with newly grieving parents, and I thought it was time to go backward a little, to find parents who have been on this journey for a much longer period of time, and to try to see if we can gain some wisdom and insight from them. Kathleen was really the first person to come to my mind. Recently, when I blogged about Andy's birthday or have had other episodes where I'm clearly struggling, Kathleen is always quick to write an encouraging word. This November will mark 20 years since the death of Kathleen's daughter, Anna. Today, she shares with us how much she has learned from that time and how much Anna really taught her over her very short life. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you, my listeners. I recently, in the past few days, have surpassed the 20,000 download mark. This is certainly an exciting achievement. It is actually pretty surprising how quickly I was able to get to that mark. I certainly hope that those 20,000 downloads represent a lot of help and healing that can be gleaned from listening to my wise, wise guests. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. I really appreciate getting your input. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed listening to your other podcasts. Oh, thank you. So I want you to start off by just telling us a little bit about you and about your story. Um, I am a circuit court judge here in town. I've been doing that work for 20 years now, and uh, my husband's also an attorney. We have uh, four children, Anna, Eveline, who was named after both of my grandmothers. Uh, She was born in uh, March 9 of 1999. We've got Liza, who is now about 17 and a half. We've got Jacob, who is 15 and a half, and Clara, who is 11 and a half. So this this is our even year. So we're going to have a 12, 16, and 18-year-old this year because yeah. um, they were all born in even years. Um, we are just a busy family. Um, we've got Bernie's Mountain Dog, and we have always kind of had Bernie's Mountain Dogs, even when our... Uh, oldest daughter, Anna, was born. Um, She was born with a really rare metabolic illness. And it's something that we didn't know about until she was about six months old. It was uh, an amazing experience in a lot of different ways um, because we had the ability to put all of our focus into dealing with her um, metabolic illness and uh, had a lot of support from people 
my husband's sister at the time was working uh, uh, as a peds hospice nurse. And how many wow. people can say that they have that kind of a resource in their yeah. lives um, wow. when you get a terminal diagnosis? Yep. And so to tell you the truth, um, I think that was probably one of the things that um, really helped to shape our journey. We had just amazing caregivers. Uh, we are still in touch with Anna's pediatric neurologist, who we named our second child, Liza, after. Wow. Um, and uh, we're still in touch with many of Anna's uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, doctors. Um, Clara just had to go to the hospital for some testing. She has non-convulsive juvenile absence seizure disorder. Believe it or not, a bunch of the doctors that we saw were also Anna's doctors. Wow. From 1999, 2000, around there. So we, we feel blessed to have the Hotel Helen uh, yes. just, just down the street <laughs> and uh, some really great caregivers. So, um, And for all of you who are not local, that is the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital, where I, am, I do rounding at as well. So, yes, we are blessed to have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, but let me tell you a little bit about Anna. I know that you, great. you kind of talk about that at the beginning of your stories. Absolutely gorgeous. She was overdue. So she's a big um, eight pounds, 11 ounces, um, born in March and just a happy baby. Um, she would do everything to make you smile. And she seemed a little thin though, as we were going forward. And we noticed um, kind of early on, it was taking her a long time to finish a bottle. Mm -hmm. So we took her into the gastroenterologist and we're like, well, you know, we need to probably thicken her formula a little bit because um, they, I think that they figured out that on Mother's Day, we had to take her in because she just had a bunch of stomach pain and she had a bunch of gas in her bowel loops and things like that. So um, they had us thicken the formula and they actually set her up for a suck and swallow study. Uh, mm -hmm. which ended up being the first point at which um, we had some idea that something neurologic metabolic was going on because at the suck and swallow study where they put, I can't remember, was it barium they put in the formula? Mm -hmm. And um, they could watch her, she would suck like 10 or 12 times and swallow once, which is not wow. the way it's supposed to go. It's supposed no. to be suck, swallow, suck, swallow, suck, swallow. Mm -hmm. And so um, while she was doing that, the formula was dripping down her throat and potentially aspirating it into her lungs. And so Julie Rice, who was the um, speech pathologist who did the um, suck and swallow study, uh, said, okay, we're going to thicken it. Uh, and we're also going to, I'm going to make a recommendation for you to have a, a neurological evaluation, uh, which was great. But we thickened the formula and she gained a bunch of weight and she was pudgy and cute and adorable and loved to laugh and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. And then um, it got to the point where about in August, um, the grandparents started kind of saying, you know, she doesn't seem to like laugh as much or smile as much anymore because she was really happy, happy baby. Didn't like tummy time, those sorts of things. And uh, so we said, okay. So we called the doctor's office. They had scheduled um, the neurological appointment, I think in November originally. And then after the second swallow, um, and we called the doctor, uh, then he got it moved up and we had the, um, we had an MRI done on mm -hmm. September 23rd and, uh, they gave her the, I think it's chloral hydrate back then, uh, to sedate her for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, we had the, had the evaluation. Um, my husband went back to work. I sat up there with her and Laura Wagner, who was the sedation nurse, just fabulous uh, woman. Anna wasn't waking up from it. And she wasn't waking up and she wasn't waking up. I think the procedure is at nine in the morning by four o'clock in the afternoon. She still wasn't awake. Wow. 
So I'm like, well, at least there's not a, like, a, you know, something really wrong or they would have let me know by now. Well, but unfortunately they had already figured it out on the MRI. They could see that her brain had, um, was smaller than it was supposed to be. There were certain uh, lesions where there weren't supposed to be. And uh, they waited for Dr. Liza Squires to come in and find me at about 4.30. And uh, they told me that she had this really rare metabolic illness called a NARP causing Lays. A NARP is a, uh, it stands for neurogenic weakness, ataxia, and retinitis pigmentosa. So essentially uh, what it was is that nucleotide 8993 of her mitochondrial DNA. So you've got the, the cell, you've got the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. And, the, um, and then the mitochondrial DNA is like a spiral, like a, like a spring-loaded coil almost. In the middle of that, at nucleotide 8993, uh, those nucleotides are groupings of three amino acids. Well, mm -hmm. apparently thymine and guanine decided to switch places. Okay. And that's all it was. And wow. because of that, though, her, she couldn't create cellular energy. I tell people, it's like uh, a sentence where the noun is misspelled, so the sentence makes no sense, uh, mm -hmm. but it's the same sort of thing. So it was in her cells and in her blood. And uh, because of that, it affected the way that her brain was developing. Right before we started taking her, we, we took her in on September 23rd uh, for the MRI. She was starting to wake up. I could hear her because I'm a, kind of a light sleeper. And I go to pick her up and she'd be almost stiff as a board and kind of almost be like making this kind of crying, like hooting noise. She would like burp and then she'd kind of go back to it and I put her back to bed. And you know, you call your doctor and you say, hey, my baby's waking up, you know, crying in the middle of the night. And they're like, yeah, and so. <laughs> so uh, is everyone's baby, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, once Dr. Um, Squires uh, came in, I was by myself when she gave me the news. And um, I'm a lawyer. And my husband's a lawyer. And so the first thing I did is I'm like, okay, well, wait, you have to stop. I have to write this down. So I had, you know, my, my legal pad and my pen, and I wrote down as fast as I could all the things that she was saying. And I said, you have to stay here until we can reach my husband because he was going home from work to get us closed to stay overnight because by then they'd finally decided that they were going to keep us overnight and figure out why she was sure. waking up. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, Dr. Squires stayed and we called my husband um, and he was at home and I found out later he had just essentially like fallen to his knees when we told him what was going on because she said, um, it's a terminal metabolic illness. There's no cure for it. Um, we can do it the best we can to try to make her life as full as we can. She probably isn't gonna live much past her first birthday. And wow. you know, just a, a lot of reality kind of hitting you at the same time. And mm -hmm. so he was at home, I'm at the hospital um, getting this news. And then um, he was thinking, oh my gosh, there's gonna be no way I'm gonna be able to drive. And his parents showed up at our house. They just right happened the to show up, wow, yep, yep. wow. There's, um, there's this great book called When God Winks at You. I think it's like mm -hmm. Squire Rushnell writes it. Um, and it's about how God kind of gives you these little kind of winks like, I've, I've got you. Um, I'm taking care of you uh, because his parents had come up to the hospital with us in the morning, but that was at nine in the morning. They hadn't heard anything and they live in Wyoming. We were all the way up in Rockford. So they just decided to take a drive. And right at that moment, they appeared at their house. And so they brought him down to the hospital and we got the word and, and got admitted. Um, and Laura Wagner, the sedation nurse, she stayed on after her shift was done. And I'm like, Laura, what do I say to people? I don't, I don't even know how to describe this. And she wrote out this script for us that I would think was like, six different statements, you know, that she has this terminal 
metabolic illness. Um, there's really no treatment for it. Um, this is what we're going to be doing. Dr. Squires is going to be working on different treatments, you know, to make sure that she's as happy and healthy as she can be. And then that was it. So I would literally call people, read the script, hang up the phone, call the yeah. next person, read them the script, hang up the phone. Um, except for my family, because at the same time, my mom had had a hip replacement and I don't want to tell them that over the phone. So mm -hmm. we had to wait till we got out of the hospital to do that. But, um, so essentially, um, we found out that this is a really rare illness and it's a really rare form of a rare illness. Yeah. And um, the whole rest of our lives was all geared toward how are we going to cope with this? What are we gonna do? And we were just really fortunate. Like I said, Dr. Squires was amazing. The nurses and staff were amazing. Uh, we got um, hooked up with the Metabolic and Mitochondrial Disease Center out in San Diego, uh, which is like the pros from Dover are located out there. And we made a couple of trips out there, got around to a um, drug trial for DCA dichloroacetate, I believe, uh, which really helped um, because one of the side effects of metabolic illness is like lactic acid buildup mm -hmm. in kids. And so that really helped. Um, she was very um, healthy on that um, during the drug trial, which was great. It was interesting though, because I think that a lot of the medical professionals were not really kind of used to having kids die. Yeah. And, you know, and I understand that. I mean, people just aren't used to those sorts of things. Uh, but that's kind of where John's sister, Lauren, um, came in because she was doing Pete's hospice at the time. That's Pete. unbelievable. I can't believe that. Yeah, I, I think there was another kind of God wink at us that, mm -hmm. okay, I've got you, I've got your back. Um, because I mean, that was again, back in 1999, when I mean, we talk about hospice today and I'm on a national hospice board right now. Um, and uh, we, we didn't talk about it as much before because it always had that end of life implication to it and people mm -hmm. tend to shy away from hospice. Yeah. And our experience was exactly the opposite. And I've been trying to kind of change people's perspectives uh, since our experience. Um, so we uh, called our own a care conference. They really didn't have them back then, where we asked all of the ologists um, to come in and the PTOT people came in and then the hospice team came in because again, John's sister was associated with them. And we sat in a room and I sat in front of the door and I said, okay, let's go around. Everybody talk about your body part and what's going on. So Dr. Schuen talked about the pulmonology and then um, the other doc talked about the gastro and Dr. Squires talked about the, um, the neurology and everybody else. And uh, then we said, okay, now what? And unfortunately people really didn't know because this is such a rare form of a rare disease. Um, but the hospice people were in there and they talked to us and they let us know, okay, well, Here's what, here's what end of life might look like. Um, mm -hmm. First thing that's going to happen is her gut's going to shut down. And then this is probably going to happen, and this is probably going to be happening. So we're not telling you it's going to happen today or tomorrow, but like all the other medical professionals, we don't know. But mm -hmm. these are the things that you can look at. And they also told us probably the single best piece of advice, which is everyone grieves differently. Yeah. Everybody. And they told us a staggering statistic that I think between 75 and 85% of couples who lose a child end up getting divorced. Hmm. And we decided right at the outset that no, that, that was not going to happen. That, that Anna would be so disappointed in us if that did happen. And plus, I, I'm a judge. 
in the circuit court here in Kent County. And that's one of the things I handled, divorce, custody, paternity, support, abuse, mm -hmm. and neglect, juvenile delinquency, those things. And um, so that probably really paved the way for us to proceed um, in the healthiest manner possible. Because um, I, I wanted to let the whole world know and get the prayer chains going and everything else. My husband wanted to kind of circle the wagons and just keep to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, fortunately, um, we figured out that, okay, he could circle his wagons and I could tell the world. Um, and, and it worked out okay for us. Um, I, I tell people, even in my current job, when they're dealing with uh, this kind of loss and, and uh, struggles and grief and everything else and trying to process all this, which I tell people that uh, it's kind of like we're on the Titanic, okay? okay? And we have all just been thrown into the water because the thing went under. And I've got my piece of door and you've got your piece of this and somebody else is holding onto their piece of that. We're the family that we've always supported each other and been there for each other and we want to save each other. But I can't climb onto your piece of wood with you because we'll both go under. Right. And you can't come on with me to my door that I hang on to because we're both going to go under. And even if we all try to, all three of us hold on to each other, or four or five of us hold on to each other, we're all going under. Mm -hmm. So the best that we can do is keep in our spot with our little piece of wood or our little thing that's holding us afloat and just encourage each other. You can right. do it. We've got, I've got your back. We're here for you. I love you. You're the greatest. This is going to be hard, but we're going to make it through. Um, mm -hmm because we save each other. We're supposed to do that, aren't we? And, and in grief, you just can't. And I think a lot of people expect their spouse to help them, but they're in the same exact spot that you are. They're just treading water. Mm -hmm. And I think that really made it possible for us to, to grieve um, in our own ways and kind of be respectful of each other um, and, and, and help tremendously. It really did. It really, because especially every single day I would get up and I'm like, is, is she eating? Yep. She's eating. Okay. It's a good day today. We're not, we're not talking about dying today. We're, it's, it's a positive one. Let's move forward. What are we going to do? You know, what are the appointments we have to go to? What kind of fun things are we going to do? And, and all the rest of that. So um, I can't say enough how, how important that was to kind of get us on the right frame of mind. Now, you know, granted, like everybody else, when you get that kind of news, I, I, I reeled for um, quite a long time. I mean, there were a couple days, I think two days, I couldn't even hold her because the, the grief was so overwhelming. I didn't want to transfer that to her. Right. So I'd be by her and things like that, but I just couldn't hold her. So I had lots of other people hold her for me. Yeah, that's important to have people there with you. I love your Titanic analogy. I think that's just beautiful because you do desperately want to help each other, but it, it, is, it is important that you you kind of have to save yourself, right? Similar to when you're on an airplane, what do they tell you to do? Put your own mask on before you try to help somebody else. So if we're all trying to kind of hang on to our own little piece, but yet we're there with each other, you know, we're not letting you get out of sight. We're mm -hmm. going to be right there with each other, talking to each other, talking about what's happening, even though you really can't help because <laughs> you can't you really can't help and people just desperately want to help but mm -hmm. there is no fixing this no there's not but, there's no but i think 
the, the part that I think that you've really done a great job with is getting people to talk about this. Because I think we mentioned earlier that um, after Anna died, um, I was astounded by the number of people who had lost a child, whether it was through accident or illness or miscarriage or their niece died or their nephew died or or their sibling had died when they were young. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, I was astounded at the number of people who came forward and felt comfortable to talk about it. And, and I learned from that that people really do want to talk about it. I, I think you've mentioned it before that we, we don't want people to forget about our kids. Not no, at all. no. And that was the great part when we were in the hospital with Clara still, you know, for five days. And it was such a strange sense of comfort that the people there hadn't forgotten about Anna, even though they were dealing with Clara, and that I could talk about Anna. And people were, who knew her knew what the story was, and people who didn't were interested to hear the story. Mm -hmm. and, and as a parent of a child who's died, that's, that's the one thing you want to make sure that they're not forgotten. Mm -hmm. That really, I think, helps a lot, too. But um, I, I just want to encourage people to, to understand that whole thing about the, the grief journey and, and everybody grieving differently and trying to give people grace and giving yourself grace. Yes. Because we're so hard on ourselves. We're the ones who are supposed to solve all the problems and take care of everything. And, and we do the best we can. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's uh, interesting, too, how you went about things at the very beginning, how you had this script and you called people and you told people. It very much reminds me of myself. And, and when Andy died, I just I just was telling everyone because I, I'm just, I'm the kind of person who likes to be prepared and to know what's happening. That's the, my personality. And so I felt like if I can tell as many people as we possibly can, then I'm not going to get, I just try to protect myself yeah. from getting blindsided by people, you know, a random person saying, how's Andy? How was high school started? Or right? Because yeah. he was supposed to be starting high school in just five days. And if, and if I, I felt like I could head it all off, right? If I just told enough people, then no one would ask me that and yeah. put me in that position. And of course, you can't, no. you can't do it as much as I wanted to make sure everyone on the planet knew what was happening. No. You just, you can't, you still no. are going to get thrown off. And so no. anyway, just listening to you. I know that's what you were trying to do because I'm thinking that's what I would, that's what I did. That's what I would have done had it been that he was sick and dying. I would have done the exact same thing. I would have told everyone so that no one didn't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, for us having some advanced notice too, and, and I should just state before I forget, it's been my observation that the grief that you go through when there's a sudden loss versus a loss like ours, which is like an illness, um, is different. It's really different. Um, and so I, I, I don't have any answers for your situation or for people who have different sorts of sudden losses. Um, my heart breaks for the people who are losing loved ones during this COVID crisis. Uh-huh who can't see them, aren't in the hospital with them. You know what I mean? All, yes. all that. I, I can't even imagine because I was holding Anna when she died. 
and um, it was probably one of the most profound experiences of my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, she had, um, we got to the point where we didn't need hospice until she was diagnosed in September 23rd of 99. We didn't need hospice till October 10th of 2000. Um, wow. That was a day when we said hope died because she was starting to have more problems. We needed another EEG and it showed that everything was starting to shut down. So we essentially stayed home with her for the last seven and a half weeks of her life. Um, and um, we had originally written a letter to everybody telling them what had happened in our whole journey. You know, we're, we're lawyers, we write things down right. and we do mass mailings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, a lot of people knew and they shared that that information because um, we didn't have Facebook then, um, but our friends set up an Anna's Friends mailing list um, that we would post things to and they would sign up and get the, the posts. And there were hundreds of people who were on that. And we would leave updates every couple of days on our answering machine at home. And we'd uh -huh. get tons of hangups just because people would call to get the, the update. Right. Um, but at the very end of her life, we decided again that everybody can kind of want to say goodbye differently. And so we scheduled open houses. And it was in October and we had lots of pie that people brought and yeah. they would just, we'd say, okay, we're going to be open today from like one to four and people would just stop by and they would come and hold her and hug us and kiss her and sing to her and talk about this or that or the other thing. And then it was, it was really amazing. Um, the hundreds of people who came by, even if it was just for a moment or for an hour or five hours or whatever they could, it was great and a fabulous opportunity to see everybody. But a couple times during those open houses, she would stop breathing. Wow. And just all the color would drain out of her face and we'd, you know, try to stimulate her by rubbing on her sternum. And we had that, um, you know, the suction machine and the whole bit, we tried everything else. And then after sometimes after a couple of minutes, she'd start breathing it, take a big, huge breath and come back again. All the color would come back. We we're like, oh my gosh. And we kept, we kept, um, I think nine times went to the brink that way and kept telling her it's okay. You know, you can go. Um, she did that stopping breathing um, like nine different times. And there were some, many times there were a ton of people that were there and I felt really bad for them right? Um, because I know that they were felt really helpless. And, and I told them, I said, we're helpless too. I said, you know, we don't know when this is going to happen. Um, but um, she eventually, it was on Thanksgiving morning at like, mm, I want to say about one o'clock in the morning, my sister-in-law woke me up and said that, you know, her breathing has really slowed down. And so my husband got up and went with her. Um, and it was that night that we had finally Thanksgiving evening, you know, the eve before Thanksgiving, yeah. um, that uh, we said, you know, everybody has seen her, everybody's come and said goodbye, yeah. um, that it'd be okay. And it was literally within two hours of that, that my sister-in-law woke me up and said that her breathing really slowed down. Wow. And um, we, uh, I said, let me, let me just have another hour of sleep. So John went and held her. Um, and then I woke up around two and went out and held her and, and she was really, her breathing had slowed down significantly. And um, you could tell that things were really starting to shut down. But I, you know, kind of sat and changed her clothes and was giving her like a, um, a bath 
with, but just with a cool washcloth to try to cool her down because her temperature was getting quite warm. And, and it was like all of a sudden at three o'clock, which was midnight out in San Diego where, you know, we had to be up till midnight and several times when we were out there. Um, I was holding her and it felt like somebody had like thrown a couple sacks of potatoes in my lap. And then uh, she just like kind of went limp. And it wasn't like any of the times before where she had stopped breathing and we had gone to that edge. It was quiet and it was peaceful. It gave me a different view of, of what it must be like for her to do that transition um, as opposed to the just the franticness um, and I remember you talking about uh, with Andy how the paramedics were working on him and it just made me think about that because it was so quiet and it was so peaceful and it was so calm as opposed to those nine other times where we were at the at the the verge of losing her we thought and it was just and it was so different um, but that has really I think yeah. impacted me about what it must be like. We sat and sang to her the same songs that we sang to her the, the day she was born and we hugged her and hospice came and confirmed and we um, cleaned her up and we talked to the people who handled her funeral. Dave Pedersen, just, I love him. We uh, cleaned her up and he had met her before she had passed and so we cleaned her up and took her over to Dave's um, Thanksgiving morning and uh, all three outfits and that was the most difficult part was to say goodbye to her there but you know it it was I I will never forget that feeling and and I hope that if nothing else people who have lost their children can get some sense of peace from that because it was truly probably the most holy if I can refer to it as that but just calm and um, and peaceful feeling that I've had in my life. And I, yeah. and I hope that translates out for, for others. That sounds beautiful. So I know you had told me before we started recording just how tough you thought that first one to two years really was and how you feel like you would like to talk to people about that time. And what would you like to say to to those of us who are in that first two-year period? I, I think the first year is probably the most difficult. The second year, next, um, because you have so many firsts. Mm -hmm. uh, I tell people all the time, I wish I could fast forward them through the firsts, the first Easter without that person, the first Fourth of July, the first birthday, the first Mother's Day. I'm not a big fan of holidays now. I, I mean, we do it because we have kids and family and those sorts of things. But I, I typically have a sense of, mm, I don't know if dread is the right word, but I, I've made it through 20 years of holidays since she's been gone. And it's just, my kids have probably heard me say more than once, I, I really don't like the holidays, uh, which is unfortunate. But you have to find your ways of doing things. Uh, remember the first Christmas was awful. Um, but we have always made sure to have roses. Anna and roses just kind of went together. And some of the last laughing, smiling pictures I have of, of Anna were at my mom's birthday, which was in August of 1999. And my mom had these beautiful um, Mr. Lincoln roses from her garden. And so this picture is of Anna smiling with this big rose right next to her. And that's the picture that we have on her um, headstone at the cemetery. Uh, with roses kind of 
etched into the stone and coming out the side of them. So at every holiday event, I have either a rose or a bunch of roses for her. Wow. Uh, and that always kind of reminds everybody that she's there with us. Mm -hmm. um, at the funeral, we had everybody take home a rose so they could remember and be reminded of how fabulous it is to live in the beauty of that rose, even though only for a while it will bloom and be fragrant and gorgeous and then it will fade, which was kind of a parallel for her life, but will always have been better off for having lived with that. So we do a lot of those sorts of things. When I saw your post about um, Andy's birthday, uh, that reminded me that um, birthdays are probably one of the hardest days of all. So birthdays and the days that they return to heaven. And that's how we always phrase it. You know, she came down from heaven and she returned to heaven. Yeah. Um, uh, that we uh, do special things. We always buy her roses and go take them out to the funeral, uh, to the, I'm sorry, to the cemetery and leave them for her. And uh, we do balloons. Um, usually on her birthday, we do balloons, and oftentimes on November 23rd, which was Thanksgiving Day when she died. And we write her messages. We do the helium balloons, and the kids write her messages, and we write her messages. And then we get a little, like a little flashy thing at Wiley's, like a little flashy ring that they, <laughs> you can light up with an LED light in it. And at night, we go outside on her birthday, and we sing her happy birthday. We sing it in English, Polish, and Dutch, because those are the, the languages of our family. And uh, then we let the balloons go and we just watch them go as far as we can watch the little LED lights blinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, some nights you can watch it for a long, long time. And so we've always kind of told the kids that that's how we get our messages up to, up to heaven, up to her. But we found that doing things like that and uh, when we made tiles, um, which is something else I would encourage people. Um, it's a very good constant reminder. We, Anna got one birthday. Yeah. And so we wanted to make it special. So um, it was Clay Art Studio was the place by our house. And um, Shelly and her sister owned it. And they opened it up to us uh, for her one and only birthday um, in March of 2000. And I think we got out of that. We had six by six tile, ceramic tiles that people could paint. And I think we ended up with over 250 of them. Wow. And so now they're in our house above our cabinets and we have them displayed and, and things like that. And um, they're on the, uh, the front cover of the book. Um, we, we wrote a book about Anna called Anna's Friends, Lessons Learned from a Short, Beautiful Life. I have that. And uh, yeah, it's a great book. It's a great story. You need a box of Kleenex. It's a, it's a great story, but it's a, it's a well-told story. Yes, so. yes, it is. We, we took our, our posts to the Anna's Friends mailing list and kind of turned it into a book with some lots of pictures and some side notes uh, about what we were going through to try to help people who are dealing with their own loss. Because like you, we didn't find many books um, that we could kind of rely on for healing. Mm -hmm. It's a taboo subject. It's getting less so. I think it's, it's people are opening up more and more about it. But in general, you don't like to talk about kids that are that die. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and that was one of the things I learned also. Our time um, after Anna died, I got involved with the Family Centered Care Advisory Board at the Helen Foss Children's Hospital. That was before we had the building, okay? Mm -hmm. So we talked about ways of making our kids' care more family-centered, and we were actually in the planning committee, many of us, for how it is designed now. And uh, it's great to be able to go there and see how they carry through with that. 
But one of the things I got to do were resident panels. And so for years, myself and other people on the committee, we would talk to the residents about, you know, what's like to have a child who is um, terminally ill or have a child who has a condition where they're in the hospital a lot and how to include the parents in the team decision making. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would always kind of look at me strange when I said, you know, if you include parents in the decision-making process, it helps you, it helps them. Um, and they name their children after you, as opposed to, you know, yeah. bring you into court. And they'd always kind of look at me a little strange, but, you know, uh, when I would yeah. tell them that we'd name our second child after our daughter's pediatric neurologist. But, you know, there, there's a lot that you can do, but in that first and second year, I want to go back to that and just mention, you really have to give yourself a lot of grace. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't sleep for probably the first year. But what I did instead was I would journal. I have been journaling now for what? For 22 years, pretty much on a nightly basis. And when Anna was with us, I would kind of journal like what we did. You know, yeah. She went to this appointment, the lactic acid levels are higher, really bad day, we got no sleep, she's not breathing right. Um, but then after she was gone, um, I wrote to her. Mm -hmm. So I would um, take all those thoughts because as we all know, that when you are busy during the day, um, you can kind of keep your mind off things. But the minute that you lay down and you have free space in your head, um, your mind goes directly to that. Yes. For me, my mind for the longest time would go to the minute that she had died. Yeah. Or the minutes before she died when I was like changing her diaper and I could tell that things were really changing. Mm -hmm. I've had friends who've lost children in very sudden and and horrible ways. And I wish that I could erase that from their minds yeah. and replace yeah. it with a, with some other thought. Yeah. And that's kind of where my mind goes. Even as you were telling your story, I wish I could replace that with a different thought. Yeah. Um, Cause it because, is, it's just always to the accident side. Yeah, exactly. And I can tell you based upon my experience, and this is just based upon my experience, that that will get different that there'll come a point in time where when your mind is resting, where that isn't the first thing that comes to mind, that you think of something either funny or something endearing or something. For me, it's smells and music because Anna didn't see very well because you have a lot of mitochondrial in your retina. And so she was technically blind, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, Dr. Drewsty would probably have a more um, exquisite um, explanation. But uh, we always had music going. Always, always had music going because she could hear really well. And we always had helium balloons floating around the house because they were easy for her to manipulate and things like that. So whenever I see big bunches of helium balloons, I think about her. I think about the big bunches of balloons that would float around our house. Um, whenever I hear the music that we played for her, um, it immediately takes me back. Music can bring me to tears immediately. Yeah. We sang When Peace Like a River, at her funeral and a bunch of other really great songs that can just take me to my knees. And if I smell Johnson's baby shampoo. Yeah. But over time, and I wish I could tell you when it was, where that was the first thing that started coming to my mind. The memory or, oh, her hair smelled so sweet after a bath. Or how fun it was when she would sit there and start making you laugh first. Yeah. You know, she would just get this idea in her head and start to laugh at you for, I don't know why, but then you couldn't help laughing back at her uh -huh. um, or how John, he loved watching football with her sleeping on his chest in the big green chair. And 
that's when you can kind of say, okay, you know, we're, we're going to make it through this, but it's getting you to that point. And especially, like I said, when you don't sleep, I didn't sleep for a year. I'm kidding. I was just exhausted all the time. Uh-huh. But um, I found by, by doing those, by writing to her and writing to her the things I was thinking about, at least I could put them on paper. And by that action, I could kind of get rid of it so I could get a little bit of sleep yeah. before I would wake up and think about her again. And a lot of the mindfulness stuff, I guess they call it now, um, I would just try to kind of force myself to think of something else. When I kept getting that final picture in my head, I would just say, no, 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 let's, you know, I'm like, okay, God, we had a great time. We went to San Diego because we had to go out there for the drug studies for her. And we tried to fit in the wild animal park and the, and the zoo in San Diego. I mean, you have to go to the zoo when you're in San Diego. Right. And so I, I tried to focus on those things and focus on the little things. Like I remember one point John was laying on his back in the grass. We just wanted to get her out of the stroller and she was laying on top of him on his chest and then um, she was just kind of like reaching down next to him and touching the grass and like digging her fingers into the grass and, and how wonderful it was for her to feel all that mm-hmm. and the warmth on her face and the grass and everything else. And so I tried to specifically remember those sorts of details to get myself away from that bad thought, not not the bad thought, but the thought I would kind of get stuck on that would keep me away. Yeah, that would you'd get stuck. That's it exactly. Mm-hmm. Just getting yeah. stuck. Yeah. And and I think a lot of the mindfulness stuff right now is really helpful yes. for that. But everybody's got to come up with their own way of doing it. Sometimes I'd get up and go do stuff, but I really tried hard to just stay in bed and I or grab a book. Um, there's a really excellent book. I thought I wrote down, oh yeah, it's called Healing After Loss. Martha Hickman is the author. And uh, a friend who lost her husband gave it to me, uh, gave it to us. And uh, it's just um, like um, daily uh, kind of devotions. Mm-hmm. And I would give it to everybody who I know suffers a loss because it, it speaks to a lot of different things. And she just has a lot of wisdom in there. Um, but I would go back and read that because there's one thing for every calendar day. So you would turn to okay. um, the, the, what, the May 8th then you would read the entry for May 8th mm-hmm. or you'd go back or I'd write notates, notations in it and things like that. So um, everybody has to find something different. I guess I'm lucky that I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I, that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, so those weren't my go-to sort of things to escape that image Yeah, that gets stuck in your mind first. And I really try to encourage people not to rely on those sorts of things, but I'm, I'm smart enough to realize that a lot of people do. Yeah. And I wish that we could provide more help uh, for people in that respect, because that just, that isn't the healthiest way to do it. I, I always encourage people to try to find, you know, healthy ways, exercise or, you know, grabbing somebody and going for a walk. I think uh, you've mentioned that as well. Right. Uh, which is great. Um, my, my girlfriend, Mary Jo and I, we, solve the world's problems, at least when we used to be able to get together before COVID. <laughs> right. Uh, and we'd get together because she works downtown too. So we'd get together at the lunch hour when we could, and we'd go and run or walk and just vent. And by the time we got back, it was like, great, have a shower, back yep. to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're doing it again. Those are just um, some of the some of the ways that we tried to, to deal with those sorts of things. but uh, And um, I think it's important, too, to set aside time to grieve so that you do something with your grief and 
that's important for me so that I can have times in my life where I'm not just just like you said. So if I know that on on Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to be talking with somebody about grief and their child and Andy and then I know that that's a time that I'm going to get to use to work on grief and work on my grief journey and then that frees other times so it isn't so overwhelming at every moment oh yeah yeah and you know and I wish I could um, tell people that there's a certain point in time where you laugh in your memories and you smile in your memories more than you cry there's this thing I write in pretty much every sympathy card that um, I send which is that um you know, may the grace and peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guide and, and comfort you. Um, and may that grace plus the passage of time help to soften the sharp edges of your grief. Yeah. Um, because in the first couple of years, especially, it's like razor sharp. And any time that you get even close to it, it's going to cut you and cut you pretty deeply. Over time, it's like um, it's it just becomes softer when you when you touch the edge of that sword. It's not going to cut you. It's not going to hurt you as much. There are times when it will, like I said, the music, the baby shampoo smells, <laughs> uh, those sorts of things, and it and it'll take me to my knees. But it, it really makes it, I guess, more palatable if there is a palatable. And yeah. I tell people too. I said, you know that 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 space that hurt will never go away. It's always there. Um, and our kids own that spot of our heart. And that's never going to change. Nothing else can fill it, really. Um, nothing else can occupy it. I mean, we had more children, granted. And they, they talk about Anna like they know her. I was going to ask you about that, about what it's like raising other children who never knew her. They, they talk about her um, almost in the present tense, sort of, um, because we constantly talk about We talk about her all the time. I mean, uh, that's another thing I hope people take away from this. Do not stop talking about our children. Yes. Yes. You know, it, it might cause us to cry depending on the circumstances, but do not stop mentioning Andy's name. Do not stop mentioning Anna's name. Do not stop sending us a card saying, oh, I thought about Anna today. There were these roses that were just beautiful or, oh, I remembered her birthday or those sorts of things. Um, don't stop doing that um, because they all can tell you her story. Right. Um, they've, they've read the book. I think at least my girls have. I don't think Jacob has. But, you know, they're aware of it. Uh, her pictures are in our house, not, you know, plastered in every single wall, but there are pictures of her and they know that we have these celebrations and they, they know we go to the cemetery to see her and we go every year in the spring to clean off her stone and we clean off the stones of the people behind her and then we clean off their uh, Omen Opus stone, which is behind that. Um, and we go there and plant flowers and all the rest of that. With our help, they have kind of developed a, um, a story of their own that um, after Anna went back up to heaven, then they were all sitting up there and Anna kind of decided that, you know, Liza got to go down the earth, earth next. And we actually brought Liza home on the two-year anniversary of Anna's death. Wow. Uh, hospital. She was born November 21 of 2002 and uh, then we brought her home on the 23rd. So that was that was an interesting situation because I was, um, you know, when you're like not a mom and then you become a mom, and then you're not a mom again uh, after she died. And that was a really a horrible time for me. Um, and it was pretty much two years. And uh, during that point in time, that's when John was writing the book um, and getting that published, which helped a ton. Yeah. 
so that was his way of processing the grief was to writing the book. Um, and we, we published it, we edited it, we did the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's another great way of, of trying to process that sort of stuff. But, um, and then they talk about how, well, then Clara thought she was supposed to come down next, but then Jacob pushed her aside and he came down next. <laughs> and I said, but, but then you and Anna got to hang out in heaven for the longest amount of time. And, and she's like, well, that's true. But I'm, I'm forgetting more and more what that was like. I said, well, the older you get, the less you remember about heaven and how great it is. But, you know, you guys got a chance to hang out with her up there, which was fabulous. Yeah. So. You know, it's um, like I said, you, you try to do the best you can, but they are they are very much aware of her, of her place in our family. And uh, and I know you've had a couple of your speakers talk about, you know, how many kids do you have. I've got four kids. Yeah, I've got one is up in heaven and, and my kids describe the same thing and three who are here. Um, plus, my son has a, a white spot right here. <laughs> uh, the minute he was born, it came out and it looked like they had like tipped his hair like right in the middle. And uh, we've always told him, I said, that's where Anna kissed you before you came down. Yeah. So he rolls his eyes at us now because, you know, he's a teenager. Because so. now he's older, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're blessed that we've been able to to um, be in a community where we can keep talking about her and and tell her story through the book and, um, and, and have a chance to talk to you about all of this. I, you know, I, I so appreciate I, you coming on. I just love being able to talk to you. you hear the oh, story. It, it's my... It's my pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, I've listened to so many of your podcasts and um, just want to, I wish there were a way that we could like send hugs over the podcast because <laughs> when I hear some of the families too, especially now with my uh, daughter having um, absence seizure disorder, I uh, listened to the story about the, mm-hmm. the daughter who took the bath Yeah. And, and died in the bathtub. And oh my gosh, I just, I was just sobbing, just sobbing. Um, because it was something that's that close to home. So, you know, I've already talked to my daughter about, nope, you don't take baths unless one of us is here and, and those sorts of things. And, and I think of you every single time, my, my way home is, is going past the ballpark yeah. from work. Um, and so every time I go by, I think of you guys and I think of Andy and I say a little prayer. I, I should also mention that um, I had to go to Lansing for a meeting. I think it was shortly after Andy died. When uh, your husband was doing the, was it the free throw shooting? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. At, at Michigan State. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how that, I think what Andy had signed up for it and, and Eric ended up. Well, I, uh, no, Eric just got called to do it just kind of randomly. But um, yeah, to shoot, to be in this free throw shooting contest to try to win tickets to the Final Four. Which he went ended up going all the way to the finals. He did lose in the finals, but we were in, you know, featured in the Michigan State newspaper. Yep, yep. And so, and that was just to tell that story. Yep, and and it was amazing to me because um, I mean, I I used to have tickets to the Michigan State Spartans basketball as I went there undergrad. So I went to this meeting at the University Club in Lansing and um, was leaving and I just happened to notice by the door that they had a copy of the state news and they always have a copy of the state news there. Right. And so I thought, oh, you know what? I'll grab it. I haven't seen it in a long time. And so I brought it home and I probably carried it around for a while. And then all of a sudden I pulled it out of my briefcase and I said, oh, I didn't have a chance to look at this. And I opened it up and there was Eric's picture and the story about um, him and you and Andy, and he was doing the free throw contest. And I just about fell over because, um, you know, I had, you and I have mutual friends. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, Allison had told me all about you um, and about Andy, and, and we were sharing that with you. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, I wonder if they know about this. And so then I sent it to her and she gave it to you. And yeah. um, that's just another one of those, I, I think those sort of a um, little bit of God wink sort of things yeah. that, yeah. Like, okay, you know, I, I can't explain it beyond that. Um, because there's lots of times I've walked right by that newspaper right, and done nothing with it. So that was a God wink for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure that Andy was really proud of his dad making it almost to the finals. <laughs> well, he made it to the finals. He just lost in the finals, but you know, it ended up, I think being for the best because what happened then for spring break, we just went around looking at different colleges for our daughter, Catherine and we were going out east because she wanted to look at schools out east. And we decided then to go to the Michigan State Duke game that they, Michigan State ended up beating Duke to go to the Final Four. And had Eric won tickets to the Final Four, yes, he would have seen them play and lose actually in the Final Four. But we probably would not have gone to Washington, D.C. as well. So we wouldn't have seen that Duke game where they won and it was so exciting. So it ended up, I think, God knew what he was doing to get Eric to the finals, but to ultimately lose. <laughs> so I know, that's, that's pretty impressive. So um, the, a couple other things, if I can. Sure. Um, I just want to let you know other ways I think that sometimes kind of we get those God winks. Uh, after we had learned that Anna was, her time with us was going to be cut short um, on October 11th. From every year since October 11th, I light a candle. I've got one of those fake candles so the house doesn't burn down. Yes. But I have it on from October 10th through November 23rd when she died because that's kind of when we were home with her during that time. Um, and everybody knows when they see that candle on the counter that that's that time that we're kind of commemorating our last seven and a half weeks with us. And I think it makes people kinder and nicer. And they realize that, you know, it was that period of time that we were here where everything was changing from like fall to winter. Yeah. But we decided that, well, what are we going to do? We have to, we have so many books we want to share with her and things like that. So we read to her the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. And we read it from start to finish in one day. And she made it because we didn't know how long it was she was going to be with us. And we said, well, that's kind of silly. We jumped into the middle of it. We have to start at the beginning. So then we read the first book and went through the whole series. When we finally got done toward the end, uh, we came to the very last part of the last battle. And in it, um, C.S. Lewis talked about how all the characters had finally realized that they were had died and that C.S. Lewis describes it as kind of, well, that was the end of the prologue and kind of now they were going to start chapter one of the new story that goes on and on and, and it was better, where each chapter was better than the one before and, and the things that happened were so amazing that even C.S. Lewis couldn't describe it. And that has always stuck with us, yeah. that all the things that happened in our lives and the lives of, of that person, Andy, Anna, all the rest of our kids up to that point in time has been that prologue, that preface. And they were starting into that chapter one of the most beautiful story that's ever been written. And we can't wait till our kids, when we see them again, reads that story to us. And, and it was just so profound when we got to that point in the Chronicles of Narnia um, that I've always encouraged people to, to read that and to, 
and to realize how true that is and how profound that is. And it just, it, it gave me a lot of hope. Yes, um, yes, it does. So, because I think as parents, once you've lost a child, you're, I'm, I'm not afraid of dying. No, no. I'm, I'm not, I'm not. And I look forward to, to when I see my child again. I mean, we've, hopefully we've got a lot of suns and moons to go between now and then. But there were a, a lot of different things that in our book um, that were really simple things about the lessons that we learned from dealing with Anna, um, not to worry. I know it's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do yes. because I worry all the time um, that you can handle it. Um, Mother Teresa uh, said that uh, she knows God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I just wish he didn't trust us so much. <laughs> and uh, that's one of my favorite sayings in the whole wide world. We learned that if you ask for help when you need it uh, and accept it graciously, because as you know, people always say, well, what can we do? We want to help. We had so many people who brought us pies and food and everything else. And you probably experienced the same thing too. Yes, I did. And that is so wonderful for them to be able to do that because that's the concrete thing that they can do. They can't take away your hurt, but they can bring you really good food. Yeah. And yeah. now we always seek out the opportunities to be the people taking the food uh -huh. and just dropping something off or saying, hey, you want to go for a walk? Or um, can we walk your dog? Or, or those sorts of things. We talked about set your priorities and kind of live that way. We had a real singleness of purpose when she was here, when Anna was here. And that really helped uh, kind of decide how we were going to live our lives. It's hard when you have more kids, as you know, because yeah. <laughs> your priorities kind of get um, in different ways. We learned that you have to provide help in your community whenever you can. And um, we did the same thing after Anna died. Our people in our church, um, they ended up having triplets. And they needed help, so we went over there and helped them. I was pregnant with, you know, my second, and we were over there helping them because three is hard to handle when you have two parents. Yeah. There were more. I want to just read this short part at the very, very end of our book. It talks about there are more lessons that Anna left behind. Some are less weighty, like take lots of pictures, laugh whenever you have the chance, cry whenever you have to, hold the close, the ones you love, and do not forget that sometimes just to sit, watch, and listen. Others require no other explanation, just to be as a blessing. All life is sacred, and death is a part of life and not to be feared. We value those lessons at well. We do not doubt that we will discover new lessons from Anna for the rest of our lives. And we also look forward to the lessons she'll teach us when we get to see her again. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.